Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6... Evolutionary.org hardcore podcast coming away. 145, Lee Haney, Steve Smee here, and the mobster. How's it going, man? Oi, oi. Let's smash it. Let's talk about the eight-time Mr. O. Lee Haney. He, you know, we're talking about this on a pre-show. I, you know, we we kind of agreed that he was kind of a bridge because before. He came around, you had Samir Banu win Mr. Olympia in 1983. And Samir Banu, he was like, what, 185, 195 pounds soaking wet, Mr. Olympia champion. Then Lee Haney came on the scene and completely changed bodybuilding. And then you had Dorian Yates after Lee Haney win Mr. Olympia, who was in the excess of the other side of 250 pounds. So kind of a bridge between the way that bodybuilding turned into kind of a monster these genetic freaks the drug warfare and stuff like that so in this podcast we're going to go over Lee Haney's history we're going to talk about his life and then we're going to talk about his steroid use and kind of discuss you know the changes that were made with anabolic steroids in that time but Lee Haney um as mobster said, eight-time Mr. Olympia champion, one of the greatest physiques in the industry. And he's also a great mo- role model for the sport as well. Oh, huge. And so um, he basically, Lee took a risk. He left co- his college scholarship and education behind as a teenager. And he decided to pr- pursue bodybuilding. He won Mr. Olympia for the first time. He was really young. Um, he was only 25 when he won it, 24, 25, 26, mid, mid twenties. Nowadays, the Mr. Olympia champions tend to be well in their thirties and early forties. So that's one way he kind of changed. Um, bodybuilding has changed since the eighties um, in terms of that. So Lee Haney, his stats, 5'11", 20 inch arms, 31 inch waist. Um, he was born in 1959. Um, he, his weight, was between 255 and 265 pounds. So he was an absolute freak, especially for that time. So he started out bodybuilding in the mid 70s. 1979, he, he uh, was Teen Mr. America. He moved his way up pretty quickly. He, um, in 1982, he was Junior Nationals Heavyweight and Overall Champion and Nationals Heavyweight and Overall Champion. Night of Champions in 83, that was a big competition back in those days, Mobster, back in your days. And then in 83, Mr. Olympia, he got third place, uh, falling short of Samir Banut, who won it. Next year, first place, first place, first place, first place, all the way to 1991. And then, yeah, and then he, you know, he he got taken over by Dorian Yates for, you know, a a period of time. That uh, That was his thing. So he basically owned the 80s. He's the bodybuilder of the eighties. If you call Arnold the bodybuilder of the seventies, you have to call Lee Haney the bodybuilder of the eighties. Um, so a little bit of um, um, his early years and I'll, I'll bring in mobster. He was born and raised in Georgia in the United States. Um, he loved bodybuilding from a long, young age. He was into um, Hercules from Greek mythology. He wanted to imitate their physiques. Um, he basically, he looked up to guys like Robbie Robinson, who was the Black Prince, and he had posters up on the wall. And that was a little, a little interesting. Like, I'm not sure what I would do if I had a kid and I walked in and he had pictures of bodybuilders <laughs> on his wall with, with, you know, in their, in their uh, panties. I don't know how I, I would think about that. I would think that was kind of weird, but in those days, you know, that's what they I had did. that, man. <laughs> yeah, I had yeah, that yeah. With my parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. All those bodybuilding magazines, what's that about? <laughs> your parents got to be walking in there wondering, hmm, you know, something. The only issue is if you're in your underpants when they come in. Otherwise, you should be good. 
So at the yeah. age of 12, the story goes, this is back in 1971, his birthday gift, I mean, sorry, his Christmas wish yeah. was yeah. to get a weight set. So the gift also contained a Charles Atlas training guy. I don't know if you guys know who Charles Atlas is. If you go to a Gold's gym and you look at the wall, Charles Atlas was one of the pioneers of bodybuilding. So, um, you know, he's one of those guys that kind of did that. So I think that got him the, the into training and it started getting him his first taste of weight training, you know, at a young age. And he took, on, took it on really easily. His genetics were incredible. Um, yeah. He joined YMCA, which is a, you know, it's a gym. Back then, you know, you had gyms like that. You, didn't, you had boxing gyms, you had YMCAs. You don't have the gyms of today, the franchise gyms. So that's what he, that's where he trained that. And a guy named Danny Rogers noticed that he had a lot of potential. And he told him, he's like, look, you've got one of the most balanced physiques I've ever seen. You need to, you need to get in bodybuilding. You know, you can go as far as you want in bodybuilding if you put your mind to it. And the guy was right. So um, he took him under his wing for the next few years, taught him how to lift weights. You know, we all had that. We all had that growing up. You know, we had someone kind of teach us. I had a great high school coach who taught me how to weight train. Mobster, you've talked about the guys who've helped you weight train. And then we try to give yeah. it back to the to the other younger generation um, as we go. And that's, that's what it's all about, guys. He also played other sports. He was into football, basketball, other athletics, um, you know, mostly in the, in the deep South, really big into football in deep South. That's like the main sport. So if you're an athlete, you know, every football coach is going to be banging the table for you to come out and do it. So, yeah. So I'll bring in mobster. Tell us a little bit about uh, his, his early life, some of the stuff that you, uh, you, some of the cool stuff you found out. I'm reminded uh, when we've talked about other athletes and if you, Sean Ray springs to mind talking about people like John Brown, showing them how to pose, showing them how to train, showing them how to be a, an athlete. And of course, at the same time, being quite competitive. When you talked about these buddies at the YMCA, I actually think he referred to several fellas down that, that were quite supportive. When they realized they had essentially what, what would become a champion in their making in their midst, rather than be kind of negative that we sometimes see where you're going, look at this guy, he must be on gear, he must be, you know, his genetics are great, blah, blah, blah. No, they were the other way around, man. They were supportive. They're like, this guy's going to make it. This guy's going to do something. And, and, and they were cool. They were helpful. They were, they were on side. And especially the, the person that you mentioned, so this, you know, we've had this with uh, Ronnie Coleman and, and, and Brian who owns uh, Metroflex Gym come in but if you come in i'm going to give you a free membership if you get a free membership you've got to compete so you you have these people that back you up it's not all negative jealousy and whatever else that's really really cool i, I i'm i'm thinking when you mentioned the stuff i won't say necessarily that he comes across as a jock but i i bet you he was a man amongst boys when he was at school physically mature emotionally mature i'm going to get into some of the stuff later on when i talk about how he's seen and perceived by other athletes in, in the game. Um, something he mentioned there, and you said with the uh, Charles Atlas course, he, 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 he compared himself in, in a podcast with London Real to being self-taught, reading a great deal. And you and I probably got element of this in our personality that we're quite analytical. So we're able to sort, sort out, as the saying goes, the wood from the chap. And when you listen to Lee talk, you see when he talks about his background and, 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 and everything, he was able to, to work out what worked for him, what didn't work for him, what, how he trained. He said, he says, much like uh, Dorian's talked about, he says, you know, I would do this in training. If it didn't work, I would drop it. So he, he found for himself what worked, what made him successful. If the arm got bigger, if the chest got bigger, did I get stronger? He's talking about stuff with uh, carbs. He says, for example, um, he says, I grew up in very wholesome foods yam uh, sweet potato and so on and so forth but he said that when even as he got to competition and and we're talking about as you say teens to start with was able to work out if he was holding too much water if he'd taken too much carbs and stuff like that very much self-taught even with the with the help that he was getting using the reference to books which people don't do now a lot of people and you and i've talked about this before go on the internet and they barely absorb the information because he'd absorbed, because he was analytical, 
even as in, in his late teens as a starting out bodybuilder, competitive bodybuilder, he was able to work out why he was successful, what worked, what he can manipulate, and would change things up. And again, was a kind of you know, note, note taker. And, and, and this is again, when he retired, he was only in his early 30s. So we're talking about a guy that has a, a mature, a maturity about him and an intelligence about him and, and an analytical brain about him in his teens. So he's standing at head and shoulders right there, Steve, just like that. And then with the support of the guys at the gym, with people backing him up. There's a bunch of stuff here. I mean, I like the idea, for example, when he was in the Mystery Olympia, he was training with Rich Gaspari. And the closest I can think to in terms of having two really, really good bodybuilders, number one and number two in the world at that time, would be Arnold and Franco. And uh, I, I recall a story, I think both of them had told the story about essentially Richard training like some kind of crazy man over in the gym and doing his crazy 600-pound squats. And he's, he's not very tall, but he's incredibly muscular. He's got really good legs, et cetera, et cetera. And Lee kind of says, who's this crazy guy over there? And at some point they hook up. And I believe actually at some point, Rich actually stayed with him and um, Lee's wife uh, looked after them and fed, fed him. And, and that was the, the whole thing. So you've got someone who's in take. And again, if you think about it, Steve, this is actually really good. You've got someone who's going to push you harder than anybody else. And without realizing it, you can lift each other and elevate each other's uh, abilities to the absolute maximum. And this is one guy in the world that might keep you as the number one, as the Mr. Olympia, because he's absolutely hungry for your title. And yet he's living in your house, you're training together in a gym. So that's an interesting thing. You don't see much of that now, if at all. You might see collaborations, which you and I've touched on before, but you're not seeing someone who's going to come and stay with you. Maybe uh, the, the classic Olympia winner with his um, stepbrother. That's the, the, the Ian Vallier. That's the only person or people that I can think like that. Everybody else has kind of got their own thing going on. And while they help each other out, whatever else, you're not literally getting this guy to come and live in your house and, and push you and, and understanding the grind and, and, and sharing food at the table. That doesn't really seem to happen much more. Uh, something else I'm reminded of, and I mentioned this in a pre-show to Steve, and a lot of their younger listeners won't appreciate it, especially people from 2000 onwards. Listen to this man talk. He, because of the whole ministry stuff that he does, because of his religious thing, he comes across as a leader. He comes across very much as an alpha male, and he's, he talks. He has that kind of cadence to his talking, like a like a like a minister. He's ever so slightly, slowly. So you are you do listen. You take everything in. He's you know he's very self-assured and you know he's thought about what he's going to say. This is not literally off the cuff stuff or whatever else. Every single time he says something, there's a message there that you can take home and it's useful. And when it comes to the training stuff, never mind the ministry stuff and, and the other things that he does, which we'll get into, this is very much a sort of um, every time he talks, there's something to learn and you should listen. And there's not a lot of bodybuilders now, even with social media or whatever else, have that sense of self-awareness and the realization that you're kind of a leader without sometimes always understanding that you are. Lee strikes me as someone who understands perfectly that if I speak, there's going to be 100,000 people listening. I need to make sure that my message comes across really well because this stuff's for all time. And as an eight-time minister, Mr. Olympia, I've got some responsibility. Never mind what he does in the community. Never mind what he does with the ministry, just for the bodybuilding aspect, Steve. Yeah, back to you. So another, another interesting thing, we go back at history, guys, and a lot of the younger guys don't understand this either, but back in those days, when you were a teenager, you know, you didn't say, you know what, I want to become a bodybuilder. You, you didn't say the way it is today. Like a lot of guys who are in the fitness industry, now they want to start their own social media page. They want to get a lot of followers. They want to monetize this. They want to they want to get into the bodybuilding world. They want to start a supplement company, et cetera, et cetera. Or they want to become, their dream is to be a bodybuilder. And we saw that a lot over the last 10 years. I think it's died down a little bit in the past few years, but we've seen guys kind of, that's the direction they want to go. In those days, in Lee Haney's situation, he was a gifted football player. He got a scholarship yeah. to go to college 
on a football scholarship. There's no such thing as going to college on a bodybuilding scholarship. All right. So it's not the way it is today where you can be 17, start your own YouTube channel, build up a lot of followers and literally make a living putting out training videos online. And then you can start your own supplement brand and go from there. So that's a big change back then. You didn't have internet back then. That's, that's another thing young guys don't realize. Um, talking to some of the younger guys now who are in high school age, because I do do some coaching and, and uh, judging for the high school weight training. And I tell them this, I'm like, look, back in those days, you know, there was no internet. And then I told them when I was your age, the best internet we had was a dial-up. You connect the phone line into the back of your computer and you dial up into the internet. That's how it worked. And they just looked at me in shock that that's how it used to be. But so you guys have to put yourself in, in Lee Haney's situation. You know, he wanted to excel at bodybuilding, but he did the prudent thing, which is go to college and on that football scholarship and take advantage of that education. Once he realized, hey, I can actually make a living as a pro bodybuilder, that's when he decided to become a pro bodybuilder. And at 19, he had made very serious progress and he was ready to compete. And another change that we saw back then was earning your pro card. Back then, it was actually hard to get a pro card. Now, oh, it's real pretty hot. Real hot. It's, it's easy. Back then, if you got a pro card, you were legit. Now, if you got if you get a pro card, the first question someone asks is like, which competition? <laughs> you know, because there's pro cards for all kinds of divisions. And it's not that difficult to get a pro card today. Okay, it really isn't. So he, that's what you needed back then. If you wanted to compete at the highest levels, you had to do that. So at 23 years old, he earned his pro card, 23 years old. And literally two years later, he was Mr. Olympia champion at 25. That is insane. Today, that would never happen. Today, no. you get your pro card and it would take you a lifetime to become Mr. Olympia. It doesn't happen in that quick of a time, but that just shows you how harder it was back then to get a pro card. He was literally two years away from being Mr. Olympia champion when he got his pro card. And then he would go on to you know, destroy everybody for the next, you know, next decade in, in, in competition. So, yeah. I'm going to address two things here. One, which we talked about in the pre-show is that uh, when, when um, in fact, Steve Smee addressed it right at the beginning of the podcast as well, because he came from that 80s era of bodybuilding and social media, with the possible exception of MySpace was barely out there and barely doing its thing. Of course, he's still old enough now that he can go on and do these things. I think he's ever slightly younger than me or there or thereabouts in terms of he's, uh, I think he's a little bit older than me. Uh, so he can go out and do podcasts and he doesn't. And I said to Steve, it was kind of interesting for me that we've talked about recently, uh, just was already gone live uh, with 3 million followers here and 8 million followers there, uh, Kai Green. 11 million total across two channels. And so I, in my research, I go and I look on, on Instagram, Lee Haney's got 207,000. There are small class winners in competitions, uh, not Mr. O, certainly not the open Mr. O, who got two, three, four times these kind of levels. So what I said to Steve, it was interesting to me that he doesn't pursue the social media side, and yet perversely, he'd been... Uh, starred on ESPN back in the day, which was again free, the, the big part of social media. So there he is on mainstream TV on the sports channel with other bodybuilders, and then including Sean Ray and others, uh, putting people through workouts on TV, sometimes live, sometimes pre recorded. Uh, they're on the sports channels. He's, he's uh, Wikipedia tells us that he's on uh, a Christian, uh, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, and I don't know if that's still the case doing something called Totally Fit with Lee Haney, where his wife and other Christian sportsmen come on and put people for workouts and talk about both the spiritual and the physical side of training. Um, so it's, it's fascinating for me. I did say to Steve that what I had heard, and it seemed to call some reference to the fact that he, he was kind of cool with his winnings. And again, <laughs> sometimes we see this on social media. So what happens on social media is that guys go out and will hire or lease a Lamborghini, or hire or lease a Bugatti or a Bentley, and they'll drive around in some kind of cool sports car. 
Uh, and again, sometimes it's literally just for the social media. Uh, we know from um, Larry Wills messing up his money with the live sex chats and whatever, from probably the biggest uh, hitting video that he'd ever had. Lee didn't do this. Lee seems to have been real careful and in the style of Arnold, brought land. Uh, one that springs to mind, and again, it's just from memory, is that he brought some land at the edge of an airport. And I think it was something stupid like a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And then lo and behold, the airport expands as more people travel on planes and they, they he gets like a five or six times return on his cash and, and, and ends up a millionaire just from buying this plot of land at the end of an airport. So it was that kind of thing. Jay Cutler's done the thing where he's brought property in and around Las Vegas, as well as his sponsorship and the business that he's involved in. So here's the thing, guys. Sometimes you can live that kind of Instagram lifestyle, but you really need to be doing things like these guys, buying property, buying land, having a pension fund, having a, as it, as it, as it, what's, what do you call it, the, the 4K, whatever the pension thing is you have in the States there, Steve me. Um, making sure you've got money for your retirement. And again, we're talking about a guy that retired from bodybuilding in his early 30s. Uh, now, whether he was rich then, I doubt that very much. The money wasn't half as big as it is now, a fraction, in fact. But the money that he had made was invested carefully. So it, it, I said to Steve, I was of the opinion that the reason he wasn't banging the Instagram drum, the YouTube stuff, the Facebook and whatever else as much as possibly could have done is because quite simply, he doesn't need the cash. And the other aspect, of course, which I touched on, is the simple fact that he's out there doing stuff in his community. He essentially runs a youth home. It's a kind of youth home. He does stuff with uh, uh, kids you know, that have lost their way a little bit. The, the, the ministry in terms of the speaking like a preacher, being involved, being out there as a Christian, telling people how great, you know, that the Lord's work is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and all these kind of things. And, and maybe that's the reason he's not got his foot hard down pushing all these other avenues that the younger guys and the more modern guys have done. And again, it's that kind of sort of uh, leaving your mark uh, when you go back and say, not, to, not just did he win the Mr. Olympia eight time, but he was an all-round good guy. He was doing this stuff. He put back in what he got out and, and he wasn't crazy with his money. He wasn't doing stupid things. It's very easy for the likes and the views to go out there and kind of talk about, you know, this kind of side of stuff and not realize perhaps that your legacy, your, your, what you're going to do in the future is as important as what you're doing right now. One of the things, just I'll, I'll address the training, Steve, if you don't mind, and that is that there's a great phrase which gets quoted again and again in any article you've ever seen on Lee, and he did this on, on one of the uh, bodybuilding documentaries, videos, DVDs you could buy back in the day, was called Stimulate, Don't Annihilate in Training. Now, Strength is, of course, relative. So we're talking about a guy that was repping and setting 300 pounds on the bench, et cetera, et cetera. We're not talking about five, 600 pound bench presses, seven, 800 pound squats, not Ronnie Coleman style. And in fact, he argues this with, with, with that same stimulate, don't annihilate, make the muscles grow, but don't smash stuff up. When your body is your living, when you want to come in, and Dorian is a good example, that Dorian's kind of body grew but at the same time, he was acquiring more and more injuries because he wouldn't ease up in terms of his training. That He carried on pushing through stuff he shouldn't have done. Lee retired, to the best of my knowledge, with nothing more than a few twinges and aches and pains. No serious injuries, no great big muscle tears, no pec tear, no, no crazy shoulder or elbow or knee or, or quad issue. Nothing. Perfectly healthy. Great physique, even now, especially for a man that's his age, 61. And... You know, you go, okay, so do I need to go all that balls out in the gym? Do I need to be doing 800-pound squats? Do I need to? that If you want, but Lee shows that you don't. Literally go in the gym, work at what works, do the sets and reps. It's a relative thing, like I said, a 300-pound bench is no, no big deal. But 300-pound when you're doing sets of 10, 12, you're doing multiple sets, you're doing everything else that you're doing in the gym. It, it, that is keeping that muscle on his frame. And as Steve said, he, I mean, I believe he finished the Mr. Olympia uh, on stage between 250 and 254 for the top of my head, which in spite of the modern sense of bodybuilding is still a very big, very muscular, lean bloke with, as I say, retiring, no issues, no medical problems, no, no, no nothing really, just a great physique. So, I mean, it kind of sensible. Um, 
but no doubt getting the absolute most they could possibly out of those exercises, learning the little angles, learning the little tricks, and having those guys that we mentioned right at the beginning sort of show them how to get the most out of that and, and, and do these kind of things. So, yeah, that, 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 that's something there, Steve. So, shall we get into this? So, the nutrition, which I touched on earlier on. Yeah. Talks so, about. Yeah. Yeah. So, with nutrition, his nutrition, guys, uh, back then, especially, guys kept it pretty simple. Simple. Yeah. You know, back in the 80s, um, there wasn't a restaurant every corner, it wasn't a fast food restaurant every corner. People ate a lot more healthier. Uh, there was more you know, options when it came to uh, food, you could go and spend 25 bucks on groceries and get a nutritious, you know, grocery bill. Now you have to go spend like, you know, $200 save groceries, food, the food costs are much different now. So that's one of the things I think uh, bodybuilders today probably spend, if you're at that level, I would guess, I mean, you're spending at least $1,500, $2,000 a month on, on groceries. I, it would not surprise me at all. Um, just because of the amount of food you eat, the quality of food you eat, you know, back then it wasn't that hard. So, you know, uh, very simple eggs was a big one. Oatmeal. What's interesting too, pineapple seems to be something that was eaten in those days. And the reason guys would eat pineapple with their meals is for digestion. Yeah. Um, so pineapple and papaya are very good for our very good digestive enzymes. So you can basically protect your gut by consuming pineapple or some papaya after your meals as your dessert chicken spinach was big big in those days um i think today everyone is scared of spinach because of uh foodborne illnesses there's been a lot of spinach scares the past few years so guys are kind of shying away from messing around with spinach but back in those days they love spinach you know uh, there was a cartoon called popeye the sailor man i don't know if you know about it you have that in, in britain yeah, 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 I know it is. Oh, you know what it is? Okay, so in, that, in the cartoon, you know, he, he would eat spinach and grow muscle. So that was a big, that kind of pushed Lee's a generation to consume a lot of spinach. And, not, and it's not so much anymore. You don't see people talk about spinach very much um, in, in today's bodybuilding. But, it, um, you know, like um, a small baby spinach, guys, is an amazing thing to add to your salads and add to your meals. You can really add it to any meal. You can make chicken with rice and add some baby spinach to it. And it's a fantastic addition to your meal. If you lightly, uh, just lightly um, boil it very, very lightly, steam it, or you can eat, you know, either eat it raw. Um, green vegetables were big in his days, brown rice. And, you know, that's pretty much his diet, guys. It wasn't that complicated. Um, you know, it, it surrounded, you know, it was complex carbs, green vegetables, some fruit. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't that complicated at all in those guys, gay okay, guys. And we have tremendous genetics like he does. It's, it's not that difficult. Mobster, you want to say something? Yeah, I'm not going to say. He was born in South Carolina, as we talked about at the beginning. So it's very much food that was put on the table is what you ate. The guys then cooked their own food. There was no meal prep companies. You, you, you'd seen the stuff growing in the fields, and the next thing you're eating, it's going to be fresh, real, real fresh food, real, real simple go out and catch the fish and eat it, go out and hunt for food and eat it. I mean, it's a real simplistic kind of lifestyle that people, again, now don't appreciate. We have guys on the forums, and I don't want to sound negative, but it's one of those old people statements. Young people of the day don't know how to cook. Young people of the day don't appreciate the fact that you could go to the field, go to the farm, buy this stuff. A lot of the time, uh, families will sit around the table and hardly anybody's eating the same damn meal. Everybody's going, oh, I can't eat greens. We got guys on the forums, I can't eat vegetables. <laughs> Why? Do you have a medical issue? No. I'm telling you now, Lee is of that generation. Heck, I'm of that generation. You ate what was put in front of you and nine times there it's saying, even for me, it was healthy. It was simple. There was no meal prep companies like you see bodybuilders doing now with the sponsors. Nothing was being delivered to the door in a call pack and you're open up and going, oh, look at these great meals. No, you cook that stuff yourself. You look at the DVDs and the videos and whatever from that time, and occasionally you'll see guys doing this now. I'm thinking of, of Kevin Levrone cooking. He had people locally that cooked that stuff for him on one of his DVDs, but it was 
broccoli. It was ground up steak. It was rice. It was real simplistic stuff. It doesn't need to be complicated, but they ate fresh. They ate wholesome. And again, as Steve says, with the genetics of an eight times Mr. Olympia under your belt, how can you, how can you not succeed? And, and I touched on it earlier on, knowing what worked, knowing what food he could do well on, knowing when he could carve up, when he'd spilled over, all of those kind of things were probably, uh, you and I would love to eat this food, I think, Steve, we would sit down and stuff like that. And if we couldn't grow and if we couldn't do well on it, then, then, then we shouldn't be training, we should be doing something else. It's absolutely as simple and as pure and as healthy a, a lifestyle and a dieting lifestyle as it's possible to get. Uh, no meal prep, no protein powders, no supplements, no, no, uh, we're, as we're going to get into the PEDs. Even the PEDs was real, real fucking simple, Steve. So, yeah, do you want to get into that now? Yes, definitely. So this is the, this is the interesting part, the steroid use. Now, we're going to talk, talk about how steroids, this is Lee, Lee Haney's The Bridge, right? How did steroids change? from the late 70s, very early 80s, okay? Through Lee Haney and then into the next generation, generation. which was the 90s. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple of things that changed, I think, during that time. Number one, testosterone use. Guys before could not run testosterone because of the estrogenic effects. So instead of running testosterone, they ran the closest thing to testosterone, which is DECA. Because DECA is testosterone with a modified atom change. So that modified atom change was designed to aromatize a quarter or a fifth as much as testosterone. So you could run decadurobolin and not have to get fitted for a bra from getting gynecomastia, bitch tits or getting water retention in the bloat. So that's why guys ran DECA. So Lee Haney would have definitely messed around with DECA for that reason. Now, what do you need to run with DECA? You need a DHT derivative. So what did guys stack with DECA? Primabolin, which is a DHT derivative, and they also loved Proviron. So they would have ran Proviron. So the DECA, you're going to run the DECA as much as you need to run to get as big as you need to get, or as muscular as you need to get. So it could have been 400, 600, 800, 1200 in those days. It just depended on the situation. So someone like Lee Haney in that situation would have ran close to a gram of DECA. And then you're going to run Primo Bowling. How much Primo Bowling can you run? There were rumors in the 70s that guys like Arnold were running 100 milligrams a day of Primo Bowling. It's a long ester. Now, why would you run that much Primobolin? Why would you run it every day? Because Primobolin in those days were sold in amps, and each amp was 100 milligrams. And that shit hurt to inject. So if you want to get in 700 milligrams a week of Primobolin, as much as you can, you have no choice but to inject one amp a day, and you had to rotate muscles. Okay, you're not going to be able to slam two amps of that motor oil into your muscle. <laughs> so even though it was a long ester, you still had to run it every day just to get in as much Primo Bolin as you wanted. So, gosh, it was a challenge in those days. Now you have Primo Bolin by Underground Labs. They've t- taken the edge off. They're, it's smoother. There's not that post-injection pain. There's also 200 milligram a milliliter Primo Bolin. So things have changed. So the guys in the 90s were able to get the 200 milligram a milliliter Primo Bolin. They were able to get better um, Primo Bolin that didn't hurt like hell to inject. They were able to use testosterone when, when guys in the, in the uh, mid-80s were not able to. That's how things started changing. And then the big one, Trembolone. Trembolone started coming around around this time. Now, did Lee Haney mess around with Trembolone? I'm not really sure, guys, but I know for sure by the time the 90s came around, guys were fucking with Trembolone. Parabolin was pharmacy grade at that time. Pharmacy mm-hmm. grade. So did some bodybuilders in the 80s get, you know, still mess around with it? I'm not really sure, but it's possible. Um, it's possible they mess with it. You want to jump in, Moxley? 
Yeah, I've, I've got a couple of things that spring to mind in terms of the cycle differences between those two periods of time, those two decades. One is the insulin and growth hormone use kind of started, growth hormones especially started around this time. And the suggestion here, which I find perfectly acceptable, and we'll link you to this article, guys, is the idea that he might have been using two IUs a day. When you talk about the stories, I think I'm thinking of Mr. America, Steve Michelak, and stuff like that, where the source of growth hormones was stuff like monkey brains and cadavers before the artificial stuff was generated and, and, and available, and here at a reasonable cost, because people moan a bitch about the cost now, the cost back in the day was on the order of $1,000 a month or more, and that's at low levels like we're talking about. We're talking about 100 IUs a month, maybe 200 IUs a month, and it was costing guys $1,000 easy. When we went when, when, so two IUs a day, so that you know the 100, 200 IUs total a month would be the thousand or more dollars. The cost now has come down by comparison, and you can probably get that same thing for 120, 130 dollars, maybe 200 dollars. Depends where you buy it from and, and the price is charged. Now, insulin came in all again towards the end of that time because there was a whole bunch of stuff out there suggesting that Dorian used it, but Dorian's pointed out. I tried it, it smoothed me, I didn't like it, etc. So he tells you when I used it and the effect that had on. So I'm going to say that the, the 80s, 90s thing, it was on the cusp of being used. Some athletes would have been trying it, but growth hormone for sure. And the second part of this was the amounts, quite simply. You're talking about the difference between, say, Arnold's era, 200 to 400 milligrams a day or something, and then Lee's era, when they're starting, it's the starting point is the 400. So they're doubling up on the previous era. And that's just average cycles for Arnold and other athletes around that time. There's always going to be some crazy person, Preet Grominski, uh, one time owner of Gold's Gym, talking about how much he was taken. You can, you can find that article for yourself online. Lots of bodybuilders would have been looking at Arnold. They would have copied what he was doing. So the same thing applies to Lee, but Lee's era you would have had guys coming in at the 400. And that's when it started to, trip to on, on one drug, started to creep over a gram a week. And if you were doing, if you were stacking, you might be doing two grams a week. Now that seemed almost as a starting point, Steve, for, for amateurs, never mind professional bodybuilders with the genetics. So that's why we get the stories out there, three, four grams a week, Mr. 3CC, five grams a week, and other guys like, like him talking about these kind of numbers. And yet, Here's the guy with these numbers, and I'm going to I'm going to put I want to do a suggested cycle, which we'll link you to, guys. 20 milligrams each day of D-bolt, which is nothing in terms of the amount. Deca, 400 milligrams, and two IUs, and that's the cycle that we've got here in front of us in the article to refer to. That is, I put it crudely, fuck all. And yet he was an eight-time Mr. Olympia. Guys out there think they need to do. Mr. Olympia type cycles, Mr. Olympia type amounts, they did, they had, there's only like two bodybuilders in history that have won the Mr. Olympia eight times. What does that tell you? When the second man was in the Mr. Olympia with no steroids and probably won his first Olympia when he just started taking steroids, that's the kind of level of genetics. And again, if you're talking about these kind of amounts, and you have the physical ability, the genetics to respond, this is all it can take. And Lee's, Lee's proof of that, 254 pounds on stage with that lat spread, with a vacuum, with a tiny waist, in his last Olympia, an eight-time winner. And it, the, the amounts that we're talking about here, if you put them on forums, including Evo Elite and any of the other forums that are out there, you would begin laughed at. If you said this was your cycle and you want to compete, they say, what the fuck are you doing? You need to get yourself a prep coach. You need to be taking way more than that in order to win. I, I think this is probably real close, Steve. But we're talking about saying, anyway, when maybe they went from one gram total to two grams total, insulin and growth hormone just coming in. I think that Lee was right on the edge of that stuff. Maybe, 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 maybe using growth hormone, again, as a tissue repairer, because I ventured earlier on, next to no injuries, only twinges and aches and pains, nothing crazy, no tears, no whatever else. Uh, no real bloat when we saw him on stage, always in good or great condition. Uh, so good with his water manipulation. I'm not seeing any, you know, that kind of heaviness and 
messing up with the physique. I'm thinking of photographs that I've seen of him back in the day, reasonably vascular. So if he was using insulin, it would have been very, very low level. So, yeah, I mean, if we were talking about this stuff now, Steve, we're talking about a, com a competing Mr. Olympia now, which we've addressed in previous podcasts, it's a whole pharmacy worth of drugs. It's, it's, and it's, it's, it's multiple units of growth. It's multiple units of, of insulin. It's, it's diuretics left, right and centre. Again, back in the day, they, uh, uh, even at least time, they had diuretics, but it would have been minimal use compared no, no DNP, no crazy stuff out on the horizon, no myostatin inhibitors, no SARMs. SARMs didn't even exist. And yet, you guys can go. Go ahead and look. We talk about him saying, look up for yourself, judge for yourself, the physique from all his Olympia wins, and tell me, no stomach flow, vascular, hard, real broad, stand tall, the whole thing. No kind of, you can see sometimes what a drug physique is, Steve. And Lee just, he just didn't have that kind of stuff. You can kind of look at him and work out what he was taking compared. I mean, not only that, and this is just from, this is just me being a kind of money grabbing. Man, it's cheap. What a cheap cycle. <laughs> so we can all afford to do what he was doing back in the day. And, uh, you know, when, it, it when you, <laughs> some of the modern bodybuilders are talking about $50,000, $60,000 a year just on the drugs, never mind anything else. I'm looking at this cycle, Steve. You're probably talking about two, three hundred dollars a month. <laughs> I think, I think, I think that that cycle listed is probably what he ran in the yeah. early days before Mr. Olympia. But I think by the time Mr. Olympia came in, trend yeah. was there was enough yeah, was time. I, I know yeah. back then, you know, back then you guys communicated by telegram and and all that stuff back in your day, but. I think, I think there was enough communication to get some good quality parabolin from France because it was I saw articles at that time in muscle media where they had a whole article on just how you could convert the phenoplex, the, 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 the cow pellets, the cattle pellets into a usable, you know, using DMSO in a base and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, it definitely was that, Steve. My time was the eighties in terms of, uh, uh, thinking about bodybuilding and reading the magazines. And I believe by the 90s, Muscle Media 2000 was available here in the UK and they had articles on conversion and using, yeah, 100% it was definitely available. But if you think about it, it's right on the edge of his time. So maybe in the last couple of Olympias, uh, in terms of um, the underground, underground labs started to appear around this time in the, in the 90s and stuff like that. There's always stuff going on. I remember again, my first cycle when, where I sourced the material from, Stuff was coming in from Pakistan and India, brought in by Russian gangsters and whatever else. And it was all ampules that you mentioned earlier on. It was all uh, pharmaceutical stuff back in the day. Now, the underground lab stuff's come on gang buses in the last few years uh, in terms of just quality, never mind the existence. We know that there was multiple underground labs in Mexico back in the late 90s and 2000s. So availability. Guys like this were still getting their stuff out of, guys in, out of the, the cases in the trunk of a guy's car in the gym car park. Uh, it's only when you got to the Mr. Olympia level that uh, friendly doctors would sign you up or come and visit you or, or, or write you a script uh, from a compounding thing because they wanted you to do well because they was a fan of yours. So it's, it's the, the transition. And again, this is just for a modern perspective, guys, for our listeners. Our listeners can go and look at sponsors and get sent stuff through the post, go to their, their post office box and pick this stuff up. That in itself is different from how it used to be. So it's fascinating to see the evolution of the amounts, what was available, the quality of what was available. In some ways, the cost has come down. I would have said, Steve, in terms of if you take the average salary back in the day and what people were spending, as I said, this cycle suggested at the beginning, uh, just maybe before we started to win the Mr. Olympia, it was only a couple of hundred dollars a month. There are guys now that we know on the forum that are spending five, six hundred dollars just on the month part the four-week aspect of their cycle, uh, and yet the availability, the amounts, cost for cost is probably actually slightly better now, and the underground labs have got a lot better. The quality of material that we can get in from our sponsors like NAPS and PSL is a lot higher. Um, the, as you mentioned already, some of the science in the manufacturing means that stuff that used to sting like hell, and with uh, PIP, that was absolutely god-awful, is a lot better again. 
So guys, you don't, <laughs> you've never had it so good as the phrase goes, you really haven't. And then again, this sort of stuff that we're talking about here was producing an Olympia winning physique and not just a one-time win, but an eight-time winning Olympia physique, walking away healthy, walking away with no need for blood transfusions or kidney operations or any of that kind of stuff, walking away with nothing more than a few minor aches and pains that comes from pounding your body in the gym, no major injuries, nothing like that, and then going on to be what it essentially, as I said at the beginning, a man amongst men, a leader, uh, someone who's making their mark through history there in a way that perhaps isn't always appreciated. So guys, listen, from my perspective, if you don't know who Louis Haney is, check him out. Listen to some of the stuff he talks about. If you want, want to model yourself on an athlete as a bodybuilder, Lee Haney would be a very good role model for an awful lot of fellas out there. So sometimes we can be in bodybuilding, weightlifting, strongman, whatever, my, my niche and stuff. We can be very selfish when we're doing what we're doing. But Lee shows you that as it may be selfish when we're, when we're competing, but afterwards, we can put back into the sport. We can put competitions on. We can have this. We can put our information out there. We can, we can share what we did. And he had that support on the way up. So he's giving that stuff back out. A very good role model, I think, for people to see. Back to you. Yeah, and it's a shame that, you know, uh, the bodybuilding of today isn't about what this guy represents, just giving back to the community and, He's a very modest guy. Now these guys are all fucking, you know, these guys today that are out there, they're all fucking mommy and daddy gives them their money. They got, they don't got to work for anything. They just get it all handed to them by mommy and daddy. So this guy actually had to bust his ass growing up. In the I think South. there's an element of, you know? as you know from pro, pro wrestling, Steve, there's an element of what sells and what gets you traction uh, so the, the quiet person in the corner of the room giving out good advice doesn't get the camera on them. The guy shouting and yelling and smashing tables and, and making a name for himself gets the attention. But in reality, Lee's the other guy. He's yeah. quietly talking, but every word he says, everything he's doing is worth listening to. Yeah. It's just the nature of media to go where the most noise is being made. The, the biggest personality, the, the, the class clown, whatever else, they get the attention. But that's, that, that's how, yeah. yeah, but that's how he is. That's how he is. You know, uh, some people are like that. They just don't want any attention. They just want to handle their business. They just want to raise their yep. family. They want to nobody mess with them. And he doesn't, he's not this guy, you know, on Instagram posting all this, you know, all this BS just to get attention and just to like get a rise out of people like some of these other clowns that we've done before. I mean, there's nothing on there that's controversial it's all just positive yeah. the pictures of bodybuilding i was scrolling through it. i could not find a single thing yeah. no news articles no yeah. media no tmz nothing yeah i mean there in in he, he doesn't have to do that he doesn't have to be like that guys he can go and monetize all his stuff and sell you these cookie cutter you know copy paste programs like all these yeah. other clowns do he, he doesn't do that because he's, that's not his thing. He doesn't need to be a multi, multi-millionaire to be happy. And um, he's the happiest of all. All these other guys, you know, they're, they're miserable. And he's, he's the one who's happy. He's got a nice family and everything. So he's got it all. And, he, and like Mobster said, he's healthy. You know, he didn't screw his body up like he could have. Because there are guys from the 80s who screwed up their bodies who are now dead who died in the nineties and there are guys yeah. in the nineties who screw up their body who are long gone. So this guy is still going. I mean, he's still going. And so is Arnold. Arnold's another guy. Arnold was from the seventies and Arnold was still going, you know, he's smart. He got out of it early and went and did movies. And the rock is another guy. He got out of wrestling to go do movies instead of staying in wrestling and pounding his body into the dirt. So that's what you got to do guys. You know, you've, you've, just, you've, just, yeah. you've just touched on something there, which is interesting. And it might be another little message to give to our listeners uh, and, and our readers on the, on the forums, which is notice that the two people that Steve Smith just mentioned have changed their kind of career type. So rather than being a bodybuilder for life, which, you know, me and Steve will carry on training until they nail the lid on our coffin. That's, that's in our blood and we completely understand it. And again, both Arnold 
and the rock are still training, they're still lifting, they're still keeping in shape. But what they did do is they took that focus and energy that made them into a champion or, or, or a world-class professional wrestler that was getting these huge contracts and fantastic viewing figures for the pay-per-views, the WWE, WWF, as it was back in the day, and, and translating that energy into something else. And here's what the thing with Lee, right? So he's got enough money to get by. He's got a great house, a great wife, great kids, great relationship. His energy now is in doing the good stuff, the thing that he can do one or two things every single day, whether it's ministry, whether it's youth work or whatever else. That makes me feel good when I go to bed at night because I've done something worthwhile. Maybe, and I'm not a religious guy, not by any stretch of any imagination, but the idea that you can stand before God and Lee's num number name comes up in the book and some Peter or some Paul or whoever, whatever religion you follow, and you look up Lee Haney's name when he's standing in front of his maker and his maker goes, you've done good, boy. You've done real good. <laughs> Come on and sit by me, motherfucker, because you've done every single day since you retired from bodybuilding something that puts something back on the table for everybody else. I can think of a couple of other bodybuilders out there where they give stuff into the community and it doesn't get made. Uh, Branch Warren is one, for example, and I believe also the owner, Brian Dobson from the gym, where they go out boar hunting. And one of the things that they do is they take the boar home and they cut it up and they eat some of it. And what they can't eat, what, what, when the freezer's full, they have people from the community come around and help themselves to joints of meat off the table. So we're, we're hunting for ourselves, but we're giving back and we're putting stuff back into the community. And the community, of course, is what makes bodybuilding. Something to, we, we're doing this on an Evo in Elite and Anabolics. We try to help you. We try to advise you. We tell you to look long-term. We get guys coming back when they say they wish they'd listen to us. Uh, you get guys come on and say, oh, you said this, you said that. We say, no, hang on. What we actually said was be sensible, do these kind of things. And it's our way of taking all the information and experience that we've got and using it to your benefit. These podcasts are the same. Guys like Lee are a model for that in terms of getting the good information out there, showing you what can be done, showing you don't have to ruin your body, showing you we can put something back and, and letting that be a lesson for today for our listeners to learn. If you go away, listeners, and one-tenth of the people that listen to this podcast does one simple, small, good act, then we've done a real good podcast right now, Steve. So it's that kind of thing. Go out, go, go out and show us how, how great you are, people, and follow, follow this man's way of living. And uh, uh, that, that, that's my... Uh, I'll get off the soapbox, Steve, and give it back to you for the last... All right, guys. So this is Lee Haney, episode 145. Mobster, take us into our disclaimer, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Have a good one. Right, people. Don't forget, we are not doctors, and the opinions that we give in this podcast are our own. It's our view and based on our experience and the views on the topic. Our podcasts are for informational purposes and entertainment only, and the freedom of speech and the First Amendment applies. Thank you very much.